Hey there, Internet. I can't know for sure, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that you woke up this morning thinking, hey, if only there was a place I could hear a bunch of cool people talk about video games. Well, then we've got a show for you. From developer interviews to casual conversation, from exciting indie titles to fresh takes on your favorite games, this is the Gamers with Glasses Podcast. internet and welcome to the gamers with glasses show there's plenty of podcasts out there where a bunch of people talk together about video games but this is the only one that has these four people on it i'm nate schmidt and i'm thrilled to be joined today by christian haynes hey hey don everhart hello and the one and only the once in future roger whitson <laughs> i mean charles martinet and not Chris Pratt. <laughs> we are so thrilled for you to have joined us today. We're so happy that you chose to listen out of all the things you could be listening to. And we are going to make it worth your while. <laughs> he said, with a totally straight face. He said, oh, Thank you. Man. 60 seconds. You went 60 seconds without breaking yourself. <laughs> Oh, it's been a long time since we recorded, and we're just so happy to be back together again. So I'm excited for all the goofs you're going to get out of uh, the reuniting of the Fab Four. Uh, I wanted to see if you guys had been playing any like video games since the last time we talked, like if there were some games or I don't know, like some other things you had ideas about. We could talk. It doesn't have to be video games. We could talk about like other other stuff. Have I been playing video games? <laughs> it has to be video games. Oh, man. Christian, let it be said. Christian's a spoil sport who says it has to be video games. OK, Don. So what uh, what what video games have you been talking about? I, I would talk about a whole range of video games on this podcast and have in the past. But today since we're being efficient, prioritizing our time, respecting our listeners' time, there's only one game that I want to discuss. And it's Lamasoft's Aka-R, uh, a newly released Lamasoft take on a 1980s arcade classic. Uh, brought to you by Jeff Minter and Giles Zorzen from Basing Stroke, uh, United Kingdom, the Welsh border. I can't resist games made by Llamasoft. I need them in my life, and I need as many of them as they can make. And luckily, Jeff Minter has been making games for 30 years, so there's a lot of wonderful Llamasoft games to go through. And every time he releases another one, I think, is this going to be the same as Tempest? In which case, I'm going to love it. Or is this going to be slightly different from Tempest? Possibly in virtual reality. In which case, I'm going to love it. Or is this going to be a slight departure from both of those past versions of Llamasoft product and expand the Llamasoft artistic approach just a little bit? And, and that's Aka-R. It is uh, a, a different approach than Minter and Zorzen have taken uh, for their last several games, including uh, TXK, Tempest 4000, Moose Life, which uh, is one of my all-time favorite games, and Polybius. Uh, instead, Aka-R is a reimagining of a Atari prototype from the 80s. And usually, Minter's style is sort of a rave-em-up techno via the early 90s vision where you're sort of shot into what it would be like if you could uh, sort of Videodrome style press yourself through the CRT of an arcade cabinet in 1985. This is different, despite the fact that it is 
still like you're pressing yourself through the CRT of an arcade machine in 1985, the the rave them up, shoot them up combination is quieter. There's uh, an effort at tutorialization of building uh, the player's ability to interact level on level with the game as it goes. Um, and the sound effects are closer to procedural reflections of your success at building on ge the geometric patterns of the game and less a, a constant pulse-pounding glow stick field frenzy. One of the reasons why I can't get enough about Lamasoft games in general is that they are the most video gamey video games that you could video game. Every single level has something slightly different about it that you have to adapt to in order to succeed. These things are only communicated through the medium of video game interaction. They don't put big bright arrows on, now you should do this for this level. Now if you do this with this en enemy, unexpected things will happen. You will have to adjust your gameplay style in order to succeed and move through to the next level. None of that happens in text or narration or anything like that. It only happens the only way that you can discover how to do this after a certain point in Aka R is by playing the game. You play it. Things happen. You didn't succeed that time, but now you know what happens in that level. And next time you play it differently, then you move on to the next level because you figured out the, the gimmick from the previous level. You do this 50 times. It's amazing every time. It's a great game. You should all play it. So is there anything that you can say that you haven't already said to sell me a very, very narratively driven gamer on the idea? Because to me, it's hard to wrap my mind around. I guess I used to play Tetris a lot. So maybe I'm speaking a little bit out of both sides of my mouth, but it's hard for me to wrap my mind around sort of the pure arcadiness of pretty much all of the Llama Soft games. Cause I don't know, maybe that's just my ego. Maybe, maybe I just have that much ego if I don't have like a protagonist upon which to imprint myself and, and a hero's journey <laughs> to go on. If Joseph Campbell isn't credited as a co uh, like producer of the game, it's really hard for me to get into it. So tell they, me they, why. They, yeah. We call that narcissism. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's so, so explain to me why I should get over my narcissistic gaming tendencies and play this game. That's just like uh pixel blast, like, like shapes, shapes blasting my eyeballs. Why should I do that? Do you have any interest in meaning emerging from structures that you might not understand at first glance? Yeah, yeah, I've I've done I've done I've done a Rorschach test or two. <laughs> you you you've read a semiotics um, at, at some point. <laughs> this is the worst podcast on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know for for you know yes. relatively academic yes, yes, yes. group and and audience that that's where I would actually put a lot of the appeal of playing Lamasoft games. Yeah. Um, a lot of what I've described in more academic terms is that Lamasoft has a semiotic of their own. Uh, it is a distinctive one that almost no one else employs the same mechanisms of how to develop and impart meaning to the player uh, via gameplay as Lamasoft does. Um, and it's an experiential uh, semiotics, which is what I, I mean when I say that it's a uniquely video game uh, approach. It is it is the kind of uh, developing meaning that you can only get through interaction with the game. And so as you play it, if you have that kind of tendency of like, I need some meaning, I need something to follow here, what you're going to get is that feeling of uh, oh, now I understand what it means when I see this type of agglomerated voxels appear on the screen and I shoot a bomb or a pellet at them. Now I understand what it means when this message about sheep flashes on the screen repeatedly. Uh, and I didn't last time I played this level and the game stopped because I didn't understand it. Uh, that's what a game over screen is in, in Lamasoft. You didn't understand what was going on, probably because it was the first time you encountered it. 
So you have to go back and figure out what it means, and then you can keep playing their game. So you're saying that they're fundamentally nihilist in character, like they're just exposing the void of existence. If that is true, it would go a quite a long way towards explaining why I love their games so much. Um, I would say, so one thing that's really interesting about this is like, I haven't played, like I've played Tetris, like Nate, I do tend to be like Nate, kind of like attracted to more narrative driven games. A narcissist. And, yeah. And, uh, narcissist versus nihilist on the Gamers with Glasses podcast. <laughs> and, but it's interesting because like, I wonder, I haven't played, Yeah, I can see I used to play Tempest when I was a kid in the arcade and I loved it. But like the whole interface in that situation is very different. I wasn't at home. I wasn't sitting for, you know, an hour or two on the television. I was playing what was sort of like a 10 minute, like quarter driven encounter. Right. And so I wonder if there's been any reflection on how sort of having these at home changes kind of the interact, like what these games are or anything like that. I, I do think there's a difference in an arcade-inspired approach, which I think is what Llamasoft has, and the arcade uh, approach towards, you know, five or ten minute gameplay sessions at a time. Um, the fork there that I would like to write about at some point is that I think that roguelikes are less similar to Rogue, the, the, uh, the ASCII uh you know, phenomenon from uh, a similar period of time um, and more similar to those arcade games than arcade-inspired games like uh, Llamasoft or like Housemarque's uh, yeah. game, for example, in, in yeah. Next Machina um, are. Uh, that's because it, I think it's roguelikes that do more of a reset for each run, for each player, and encourage uh, loops of going just a little bit further and maybe having this run be the run where you get the complete experience of, of the game in some way. Depends on the roguelike. Some are a little more you know complicated than that and, and there is no definitive the run. Um, but many of them, you're looking for like the canonical run that takes you through the whole game in the same way that a lot of uh, arcade games might have been earlier structured. Uh, with the arcade offshoot, that is is less rarely explored and probably less commercially successful as a result. Um, I think there is more of an effort on, all right, you have infinite quarters. You have as much time as you want to spend. The goal here is less on hooking you into what's the one way to build on this and, and get through the game, and more on that, well, if you could try something as many times as you wanted, and we had to do something different every every time that you played it so to get you to capture your curiosity, to get you to want to play to the next level. What kind of emergent structures and gameplay would we have to have to have your curiosity and have your attention? And and that is, I think, very different than uh, some of the coin op uh, arcade styles of the past. Do you find that you have to like? set aside time differently i'm just thinking about playing at home like roger mentioned and how if i'm gonna sit down and try to get to the end of dead cells which i've still never done because as i'm always insisting i'm not very good maybe that's why i don't like <laughs> maybe that's why i only like narrative games because you often don't have to really be that good uh but uh so Having never gotten to the end of Dead Cells, every once in a while, I'll think to myself, today's the day. I'm going to try to get myself the end of Dead Cells. But then I know that I need to budget like a fair chunk of uninterrupted time to try to do this. And so it is a little bit more like there is almost a kind of barrier to entry, even if it's not a geographical one, like having to physically go to the arcade. It's certainly a chronological barrier mm -hmm. that I as a parent and a person with multiple gigs and everything have to plan ahead to, to do that. So uh, what's the, I guess what I'm asking is, can you save your game? Yes. I do 
feel like uh, I feel the same way as about Spelunky 2 as I think you feel about Dead Cells. And I still haven't finished uh, Spelunky 2 despite writing about early impressions uh, for it for this site a couple of years ago at this point. Um, for the same reason, I feel like I had to like really like get into it and repeat it and like have enough. It isn't just one session. I have to have like a whole block of time to get into shape to beat a game right. like Spelunky 2. Llamasoft games come with two gameplay modes, uh, pretty much by default at this point for the last 20 years. Uh, and one is pure mode, where, yeah, you've got to start from zero and play all the way. And, and if you run out of lives, that's it. Uh, but as you play pure mode, um, each time you unlock a level, you make it to the next level, in normal mode, you can restart at your best restart. Nice in whatever level, and it tracks that level on level. Uh, Aka-R actually probably has the best tracking in game. It's almost like having one of those speedrunner menus on the side where you're like seeing your best split and your best score and your your best stockpile of lives at any given point. Um, And that's what's saved in normal mode. So if I want to, I can be like, well, I don't want to play the first 20 levels of Aka-R again because I'm just trying to get past level 20. Um, and at level 19, I have this huge stockpile of lives. I just want to restart at level 19 where I've got my stockpile of lives so that I can give myself the opportunity to figure out what the heck Minter and Zorizen are trying to communicate to me in level 20. Uh, and they say, yeah, all right, you should do that. That's awesome. That's awesome. That sounds like you, you might've won me. You might've won, depending on what the price tag ends up being, you, you, you might've won me over. <laughs> Their games are not expensive compared yeah. to a larger budget video games. Yes. Yes. One, <laughs> one can imagine. And that is, you know, as we know, that is the goal of this podcast is to convince me personally to play, yes. to play. <laughs> That's why we do. <laughs> well, you, you introduced the, the show today. Today is convince Nate to play a style yes. of video game. Namely yes. Akar, because Don is obsessed with it. Yes. Uh, and I think actually that's it. We should call it time. All Don right. Don. Well, so before we call it a day, we haven't gotten to hear much from Christian yet. So I'd be curious to hear if Christian has uh, has been playing anything, whether it's related to Akar or not, because I'm always excited to hear his thoughts. I have not been playing Akar. All right. Well, we can. No, I guess um, we can. <laughs> we could go, I mean, man. All right. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's been a while since I've I've been playing a lot of things, falling off a lot of things. Um, honestly, just doing more work than actually doing anything fun of late. But I have played some stuff. Um, I played some remakes. Uh, I played the Dead Space remake, which was quite good, and I won't talk about that because it's quite good, and I think everybody knows it's quite good. Uh, I'm playing the Resident Evil 4 remake. I could say the exact same thing. Uh, that's, you know, it's nice to shoot zombies and now you can move while shooting them. Um, always a plus. Uh, I, the things I'll talk about are just a few indie games, relatively high profile ones, to be honest. Um, so I don't think I'll be shocking anybody with any of them. Uh, the first one I'll mention is uh the game season which i reviewed for the site and maybe we can link to that and that's by scavenger studios this was a game i think i was looking forward to quite a while and i think a lot of folks were um it was interesting to me because i think the reception was a rather muted or more muted than i expected there were a lot of people that really liked or a handful of people that really really liked it and a lot of folks that were just kind of like oh okay um i fell in the category of folks that really liked it and what it is, it's a kind of non-dystopian, post-apocalyptic bicycling game, bicycling and photography and scrapbooking game, in which you sort of leave your village on a bicycle and travel around uh, maybe five or six areas, each of which is a kind of different communal location there's one with these kind of rusted windmills and you know kind of oil derricks that seem to be falling into the sea there's another that's a town that's actually just now uh sort of retreating from its own uh architecture and it's a very 
peaceful, low-key game. There's no combat. The key mechanics are just bicycling around, taking photographs, and scrapbooking your photographs and some drawings. And the, there's also some journaling, but that, you don't really do the journaling yourself. You just kind of trigger circumstances in which the journaling happens. And I think what I liked about it and what I found really refreshing is that it was a thoughtful game about our relationship to our environments, both our built urban environments, as well as our natural environments. There was no sense of there being an enemy, but there was a sense of anxiety about the future, but it was never like, it was never ratcheted up to the point of panic or anything. And without giving away too much, uh what i'll say you were left with is a kind of melancholic reverie about how we're going to record history and the way in which we pass history down so yeah don do you want to jump in i feel like you have like a a whole range of post-apocalyptic ecocentric not necessarily combat or violence heavy game to draw on. Mm-hmm. And, and this is uh, one of the, the latest ones to compare. I, I'm curious about uh, a comparison that, that you might make between it and something like Cloud Gardens or mm-hmm. even something like Kirby and the Forgotten Land. Yeah, so I'll say two things. One is I would put Kirby and the Forgotten Lands in the same sort of array as Near Automata, um, although Near is a far better game. Um, Ooh, I, I know the I Kirby stand. Don wasn't going to be um, happy. <laughs> uh, but you know, suspending that accurate judgment for a moment, um, both Kirby and Nier still fundamentally pivot gameplay wise on combat, and it does structure the relation to the apocalypse, right? Um, and to sort of the built landscape. Whereas something like Clown Garden, Cloud Gardens, I think is a good example, even if it's a kind of a strategy puzzle game, because it does suspend that, you know, friend versus enemy distinction. And season does too. I mean, there are moments of tension in season, but those are moments of like dealing with a cranky old artist, right? And trying to convince the cranky old artist not to stay in the home that she's built because she's going to drown. Right. So there is a flood in the game. That's actually one of the kind of pivotal plot points, such as, you know, it's it's a very picaresque game in a lot of ways. So there's not necessarily some big conflict. It's more just like, you know, sort of strolling from one location to the next. But there is one, the largest section of the game does involve you sort of meeting these people that are uh, evacuating a town that's going to flood. And you do find a couple of people that are just not going to leave, that they've kind of made their peace with the fact that they're going to drown. They're okay with that. And they've produced lives for themselves there that they just, that's what they're dedicated to. And, you know, so I think something like that, I haven't seen that kind of narrative work too much in games. I think there are, some examples where that sort of thing happens almost sideways, but in some ways this is a kind of traditional narrative game um, in that you have a third person uh, character who's reasonably well-developed and who has a background, the father that she's lost, but weirdly precisely by being traditional sort of in its presentation of narrative, but having the content be dramatically different than what, you would usually get from that kind of traditional narrative structure, it actually does something different, right? Um, that's a, maybe a little bit more like a game like Cloud Gardens that was produced by one person that was initially supposed to be an open world role-playing game. Cloud Gardens was. Um, uh, and then it got stripped down to literally one procedural environmental generation mechanic in that game. This is me recommending Cloud Gardens instead yeah. of saying go play uh, Season Pool. It's I've written about that game too. That's pretty fascinating. But yeah, so that's that I think is maybe the most impactful game that I've played in a while. I'm playing the game Dredge right now. Oh, the fish with the scary the fish. fishing game. Yeah, which is going to be one of those scary fish. Yeah, it's going to be one of those games that I enjoy for about a week and then I stop playing before finishing. I just can tell that already. Uh, mm-hmm. 
it falls into the same category for me as a you know uh animal crossing or a stardew valley where there's a certain kind of like repetitive core mechanic that a lot of other people like that i'm like okay this is fine i'm enjoying this i'm watching you know a season of top chef while playing this uh and then eventually i'll keep watching the top chef and stop playing the game which is not to say it's a bad game it's aesthetically brilliant it has a great soundtrack uh it does have spooky fish that you can get it does what's the the scariest fish you've caught i'm pretty early so so far i'm just getting like these like fish that have mutations like Mm. you know um mostly i'm in that stage where you're like meeting townsfolk like the lighthouse keeper the you know perennial lighthouse keeper who's a little spooky um and it's it's fine i would say what makes the game impressive is they did the perfect balance between fidelity and graphics and simplicity. And so it's just the right amount of detail in its graphics and, you know, in a kind of cell shaded 3D uh, isometric perspective. And you even control the zoom level, which is really nice. It gives a really different kind of feel if you're up close to the boat kind of chugging along the water versus if you pan out and then all of a sudden, you know, you're just kind of this little boat uh, and it almost feels like a bit like a diorama. Um, But I've only played maybe an hour and a half of the game. And like I said, I like what I've played. Um, It feels like the opening of a Lovecraft story and the way that I'm sure it's going for. Uh, But I don't see myself continuing to play it. And that's not the fault of the game. It's just my own kind of limitations and taste. Does it remind you at all of any fishing mini games you've played? And just because the fishing mini game is such an iconic yeah. mechanical thing, what's the relationship between fishing in everything else and the way that fishing works in Dredge? Yeah. So it extrapolates your standard fishing mechanics that go back to, you know, early 90s, late 80s NES games, Mm -hmm. um, which are very, very similar, as we all know, to the same era golf games and the still the golf games. So, you know, stop the cursor as it goes back and forth at certain points. Uh, It complicates it a little bit by making... uh, the cursor go 360 degrees around, having multiple points you need to stop to get thinner and thinner. But the one thing that it does kind of add is a Tetris-like inventory storage mechanic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and 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 that, yeah, you know, or if you prefer Resident Evil style, you know, inventory management. But what makes that interesting is that not unlike a survival horror game like a Resident Evil, is that there is a time-based mechanic that makes that interesting, which is precisely that you're trying very often to get back before either the sun goes down or if the sun is down before your panic meter elevates too high, right? Uh, And so you have this incentive to kind of cram as many fish as possible because if you have to keep going in and out, you're going to run out of time quickly. And every time you move the ship, every time you fish, you see time move. And because the game, and I'll say this is a really nice touch, because the game has a day-night cycle and because the graphics are... Uh, indicative enough you do actually see the seconds ticking away like on the screen in the way in which the lighting changes and it's a really it's a really thoughtful game graphically i'll say it's um it's you know one of those indie games that very much makes the case that it is not about you know producing graphics that require a 3080 graphics you know card but rather about making sure you've got the exact right art direction for what you're going for you know and just like real fishing it's uh you sit and just watch your life tick away there is some of that there is (laughs) i mean the dialogue is well activity exactly (laughs) we're back to nihilism versus uh narcissism um and this is definitely the nihilist Side. that's good uh, that's good se- season is definitely on the narcissist side i'll say yeah yeah um <laughs> uh, i cannot think it's amazing i cannot think of a better ranking system for video yeah. games we've <laughs> hit it we found the best one 
Yeah. <laughs> Can I? Other sites have four out of five stars. <laughs> must have... play or must leave. <laughs> we have a non-judgmental narcissist. We have list. <laughs> N plus one or N minus one. Um, yeah. I was curious before we moved to away from Dredge. What's the first game you can remember fishing in? That's a good question. Because I was thinking Oregon Trail 2. Whoa. I'm pretty sure there was an option before you do the little mini game where you have to get the, the wagon across the river. I'm pretty sure there was an option that was just like click like fish, like try to fish and see if you get anything. And it was just randomized. Like there was no mini game. It was just like maybe you get fish and maybe you don't. But I could also be filling that in uh, incorrectly. I am going to say that there is fishing in near automata. <laughs> and that if you fish in the right spot, you can get another combat droid. And it's very finicky about what the right spot is. Nice. <laughs> nice. I once spent like two hours trying to get the right spot while staring at a YouTube video and going, I well, know I'm there. Better than Kirby. Yes. What's the first what's the first Zelda yes, thank you fish? <laughs> oh man. You can fish an Ocarina of Time. You can. Yeah. It doesn't really do much for you, but you can oh. do it. There's a piece of heart. Yeah. Yeah. But some yeah. of those you can also find just like by walking. Wait, wait, wait. You you don't want all 20 hearts in Ocarina <laughs> of Time? I have a feeling. I have a feeling that Don and I both love Zelda games in very different ways and for very different reasons. <laughs> because, like, I, I, because you, you, you are kind of a 100% guy <laughs> in, in, in some stuff, in some stuff. Because I'll tell you, I have never 100% at a video game ever. Like, me either. No. I, ha I've only 100%ed Souls likes. That's it. Yeah. Which is a lot is of work. Zelda terrible. a Souls-like, though, Roger? What? Is Zelda a Souls-like no, in its action-adventure no. 3D incarnation? No, but I did... I I don't know if I 100%ed Breath of the Wild or wow. not. I can't remember. I definitely did not. I feel like if you 100%ed Breath of the Wild, Roger, you would know it because you would have sunk about 600 to 2,000 hours into it. At I least. sunk a lot of hours into it. I am I am replaying that right now, actually, in preparation for the next Zelda. Nice, nice. We I was playing it earlier today with my son, just because he kind of goes in and out of fascination with uh, with games that we've had for a little while, um, and it was really fun. We went and we did the labyrinths where you get the barbarian armor set, and it was really cool. We were cool. You um, any fishing? Yeah, so well that's what I was thinking. I you can jump in the water and catch a fish if you're lucky enough to have it swim past you. But is there a way to fish? I don't think so, but that's just making so. me think, you know, I don't know if folks paid attention to uh what is it, Tears of the Kingdom? Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh but I guarantee you you'll be able to fish in that game. I'm, yeah. I guarantee, I mean I have no insider knowledge whatsoever. But if folks have seen the new mechanics that they're introducing, which are all about building and crafting machinery and binding things or fusing things together, you're going to be able to like put a stick and some string together and go up to a lake and put it in the water and fish. Like, I feel like I feel like after Breath of the Wild, there's always going to be some kind of that crafting element in every Zelda game. Like, it's just too it was just too popular. And I can't imagine a crafting game without some kind of fishing kind of situation. So, yeah, yeah, that's fair. I'm a little nervous, to be honest with you, just because like collecting because my one of my least favorite parts of any other Zelda game involved collecting items called tears to fill a spirit <laughs> vessel. And I'm. <laughs> really worried this isn't twilight princess uh i'm i'm really worried if they're bringing tears back that i'm gonna have to spend time doing some bullshit like that again and i 
really hated that part of those games. I really, truly did. <laughs> what they have showed so far seems like so antithetical to that. It feels yeah. like they're just leaning hard into, like Roger was saying, like, and I heard some, this is me borrowing from somebody else, but like, I heard somebody say that this is like the first time they've seen a Nintendo game that looks so clearly developed in response to what fans have done with the preceding game. Hmm. Yeah. But they were I just, just like... Hope... Sorry. No, go ahead. I just, hope, I just hope that not all weapons are breakable. Like yeah, that, that's for the real. thing that annoyed me about They're this. all going to be breakable. They yeah. pretty much said that. Yeah. I yeah. Have to admit Nothing's permanent you. in this world, Roger. Yeah. <laughs> I just hate entropy. Like, what are you talking about? I can't, I can't, I need to come to terms with it. And that's what Zelda teaches. Yeah. I would like it if they'd last a little bit longer though. Like I should be able to kill more than one Lizalfos. Oh my God. The amount of effort you just spend, like getting one thing after another is. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like the real question of degradation is going to be the degree to which the like Nintendo Switch heats up as you're playing this yes. new version of Zelda. <laughs> and then how angry you get when they announce the new version of the Switch or whatever console is on next. which this game is going to run perfectly much as better. It was right? designed. Yes. With a with like twice as much draw distance, which I think is actually gonna be the key thing, right? Like, although one of the things I and I only thought about this as I was watching that like gameplay trailer. One of the brilliant things about this game having those like two significantly different levels, you're up in the sky or down below, is that the fact that you have to fall for so long to get below is such a good squeeze through the crevices, like yeah. loading sequence moment, you know, mm. just like in like PS4 games when they all were just having you squeeze between like uh God of War. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. God of Wars, your Tomb Raiders, your whatever, like and Zelda. But I'm the probably fall. not going to enjoy any single one of those falls as much as the opening fall at the start of Paradise Killer. That's a good fall. <laughs> yes. Good fall. That's a mm. game that's had some legs. They're still making merch for that game. Wow. Good for them. I I, yeah. you know, I, I own the LP. What can yeah. I say? We interviewed them, right? We oh, interviewed yeah. them together, right? Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Yeah. Um, My favorite fall is when I got to the end of the undead berg for the first time and got hit by the barrel. The exploding fire barrel. And I fell off. I was like, I want to cry, but I have to laugh. It's so amazing. (laughs) That's it. That's that's the from soft slapstick humor that I love so much. There's the I was the one stooge. I was the one it was just me, Larry, <laughs> alone, <laughs> poking myself in both eyes. Um, <laughs> speaking of which, uh Roger, what have you been up to? Um, I've been playing a like a ton of dead cells. Hey. I was gonna bring it up when we were talking about have it. Have you played the Castlevania really... one? Yeah, yeah. So Really quickly, I want to talk about, though, before I get to Dead Cells, because I have a lot to talk about with Dead Cells. Uh, I just want to talk about how I played Metroid Prime, the remake, and I really loved it. Awesome. And it's a really I'd, good I'd, game. I had never played it before because I didn't have the GameCube, and it was like this big, like the Prime series is like a big gap in my Metroid stuff. The only thing I hate about that game is the half pipe. I hate the half pipe. Mm-hmm. Half pipe puzzles annoy the hell out of me, and it's the only thing. Like there were te- there were two or three energy tanks that were like, do the half pipe to get to the energy, and I'm like, no, I just left. <laughs> I was like, forget that, I'm not gonna do that. Um, but like, so otherwise, I really loved it, and it was really amazing to me. Even even today, like, I think it would have been a if I had played it back in the day. I think it would have been a revelation to me, like that you know you can do more. Yeah, I think part of the innovation of this game is like you can do more with um, first person than just sort of shoot 'em up stuff. Yeah. Like you can actually add a depth to the game that most shoot 'em ups I think back then didn't quite have um, when it came out. Um, but having said that, like it's I think it still holds up in way and is still quite unique in terms of first person games, even given stuff like Borderlands or other games that have done more with the with the you know, the first person shooting kind of kind of genre. So I enjoyed it. 
The music is um, so good in it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love, I remember one of the things they have all of these great little flourishes with like one thing that I remember the first time I was seeing it was, um, you know, shooting like a big shot really close to you and how it illuminates your visor. I just love that little, little detail. So it was fun. It was fun to go through that. But I'm still obsessed with death cells. I don't understand how this game does that to me. Like I've been obsessed <laughs> with this game for years. That's because it was made by a socialist, a socialist development studio. And it that's, was? that's what yeah. we look for. That's what you got. I don't check. even, I didn't even know that. The that's DLC awesome. is no longer being handled by them. They sold the rights to do the DLC to another company, but yeah, it's a workers co-op, a socialist workers co-op that uh, made the game. They're awesome. Whoever they are. And I love the the Castlevania remake. Um, did anyone else play? Has anyone else here played the Castlevania DLC? I haven't done it yet. I, I uh, it's one of those things I plan to get to, but I haven't done it yet. There's really no spoiler. I mean, it's just like, what do you want in the situation, and you get is exactly it, that. Does it feel <laughs> substantial in any ways, or does it just feel like a handful of yeah. new weapons? And okay. no, it's like like I would say like most of the DLCs on Dead Souls usually we'll add what's known as a biome, which is like one yeah. kind of level, right? Um, like one or and, two biomes, a boss, and maybe a weapon or two. Yeah, this has two, like, almost twice as large biomes added nice. to it. Wait, That's not cool. two. I would say four. There wow. are two, That's like, nice. so, like, the first time you can go, like, when you load up the DLC, you go in the first level and, you know, like, the gimme level, and you meet up and Alucard is there and they're hilarious by the way that Al- Alucard and Richter because they're both <laughs> idiot they're both like hi can you help us let's go let's go and then like you get to to Dracula and they're both standing right outside of the entrance to Dracula and they're like oh i just i, I just want to wish you luck i i wish i could help you and it's like <laughs> can't you help me <laughs> and they just it's like they just stand there while you go fight dracula i thought that was hilarious simon would have helped um, you if simon Belmont right? was there he would have helped um and then they also have a special like richter level where you play richter you don't play the dead Souls. i forget who the oh, dead really? Souls. i don't even okay. care like yeah you play flame the richter or flamehead flamehead yeah um and it's just Cuphead's, like regular Cuphead's cousin Flamehead. <laughs> if Cuphead and Flamehead got together, they could make creme brulee head. Wow! <laughs> I just, oh yeah, I didn't even get. Wow, I didn't know you could do. That. I didn't know even they had merch. I had no uh, idea. No, Christian, actually, if you just you play like the what, game since, well since, enough, it comes since, out. Since this oh. is an audio, since this is an audio <laughs> medium, Christian, would you like to explain what you just did? No, yeah, it, wasn't, it wasn't supposed to be part of the podcast. Let's let's be accessible. <laughs> welcome, welcome everyone to the part of the podcast that's not the podcast. Yes, Christian's, the liminal space. Christian's amiibo corner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have a little dead cells uh, figurine of the main character, Flamehead. That's fine. Um, and his little worm buddy. Um, what is that uh, thing that comes out of his head? He's like a little worm slime guy that animates a body, right? Like, what yeah, is- I think that's probably what it is. That's how I've always understood what narrative sort of elements there are in the I, game. I did beat it, and you can like shoot the worm thing out of his body and like roll around with it. Nice. Mm. I don't know if that has any like who cares, but like, yeah. Anyway, so like. You can play Richter. It's a little like I kind of don't want to play Richter because he's kind of slow and stupid. Oh, but yeah. like, I mean, he's not like Flamehead. Is that his name? Flamehead. Flamehead's like fast and he's like shooting people and like killing everything. And then you're like Richter and he's just kind of bumbling along with his stupid whip. Like, who here we whip you? You know, like. <laughs> um oh my gosh so no respect I, for the classics roger <laughs> oh i love it i love I, I mean i wouldn't i would this brought me back to dead souls i think um when i heard that they were redoing the castlevania yeah. thing and it's remarkably i mean it works really well and they do a really good job with it i think overall um the bosses are awesome um the the new weapons that you get from it are awesome um, but I did want to give a special shout out. I don't know how many of you have played Dead Souls recently, 
but they recently had another uh, DLC that's like everyone's here. Have you all heard of this? No, I didn't hear about Something that. Like no. It has weapons that are references to almost like every indie game you can imagine. Nice. Um, like it has like you can get the bat from Hotline Miami. You can get the nail from Hollow Knight. And they all have these special things. So like the nail like will do critical damage if you bounce with it, which <laughs> I love. I freaking love that element That's cool. of it. Um, That's badass. They have the face. I don't remember the face blast from Blasphemous. What does the face blast do? Like I only played a little blast? bit of Blasphemous. I was just playing it. Oh, man. Crap. I can't quite remember. It's it's something that like debuffs your health but buffs something else yeah it does that in this in this one too and they have the katana from the katana zero and it took me forever to figure out that you can you if you hold down the katana with the katana zero it does like the fast like go through the guy and the guy like kill dies and the first time that it happened my girlfriend just started laughing because i was like oh that's so cool Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it did get that reaction out of me. Uh, so, yeah. I don't know. I love Dead Souls. I I can't like. It's just amazing to me that and Slate Aspire. There are a few of these indie yeah. games that are just instead. Of, and I maybe they'll make a sequel. I don't know. But it seems like instead of making a sequel, they're just continually releasing these DLCs and just making it this just this interesting kind of understanding of what a game can be which i think is really cool so yeah i i can't wait to see what motion twin which is a studio that made that comes out with next although it's going to be hard to live up to a game that just it just feels so good in your hands the role mm-hmm. in that game mm. and just like has the mm. exact right number of invincibility mm. frames is just like it feels so good yeah i love i really love the hayabusa glove where i just like to punch things it just goes yeah. and it just blows up it's like yeah I, nice. i'm still i will always be a sucker for like the sub-zero style freeze ray or like freeze ball followed yeah. up mm-hmm. by like just like a heavy sword yeah, yeah. that's probably the loadout i've gotten the farthest yeah with. uh it's a little bit i i find it to just be more intuitive or the little trap i like the little trap you throw the trap my, on the ground my special layout is have you seen the spear where that like well you can rush somebody and then it'll shoot you up in the air and then you like hit their head yeah. for double damage? I yeah. love that. I love that there's a laser glaive that if you have multiple enemies, it'll just ping the enemies until they die. And then um the other two, one is like the weird shrimp monster that like you somehow randomly get that mutates. And then I like the thing that is like the electrical field that rotates around you that just eviscerates enemies like a force field it's kind of like the leaf shield in Mega Man kind of yeah yeah I love I love the chicken I love the chicken you turn into a chicken and then you run around and throw exploding eggs it's not power yeah yeah and it's a reference to guacamole well I haven't played guacamole but (laughs) so good I like the chicken and dead wild chickens on the podcast. <laughs> the <laughs> wildest of them are like just brilliant. You should play. You should totally play. I, both I, I, there's a developing Roger Woodson plays dead cells uh, hype uh, meter or ratio here, and it <laughs> yes. goes from the katana of oh it's so cool to the chicken. Side. That's, that's, those are the, the two rankings that you can get. That's, yes. that's the top compliments. That's what I'm getting out of this. Yes. Yeah. So well, folks, I'm going to have to run soon, but I want to hear what Nate has been playing because I don't think we've gotten to Nate yet. Oh, I don't know. I kind of forgot. Um, no, I. What? Well, so the thing I wanted to ask about was something that we don't have to talk about if Christian doesn't want to hear about it. Um, But so I went yesterday to see the Mario movie. And again, I'm, I'm going to not say anything. I don't think that a person who might be about to go see the Mario movie at some other point will be disappointed to hear. Uh, But 
I have this long running theory that I think I've mentioned here before that there is no narrative critique of Mario. Like I cannot write about Mario. I find myself unable to do it no matter how much I want to. I don't think I could even write a review of a Mario game just because it's such an empty set of signifiers to me. It's mm. just like, like it literally could have just still been Jumpman. They could have called it Jumpman this whole time. And I wouldn't change a thing. Wouldn't have changed a so thing for me. Mario is like, like what Derrida calls the Quora, right? It's like yes. the passage, the, yeah, the, the infinite kind of cipher that in and of itself is meaningless, but takes on whatever meaning and constructs and in doing constructs separations between like subject and object. And Yes. And I would offer that the movie firmly maintains this position <laughs> for, for, for Mario. And, and I'm excited to hear there's definitely an affect theory critique of the super Mario movie that I will be excited to hear if Christian has anything to say about after it has been watched, but I did want to throw the question to the group. Am I wrong here? Or like, how wrong am I <laughs> about <laughs> there not really being anything interesting to say about Mario? C Christian, Christian, yeah. prove me, prove me, 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 me. No, prove um, me how, how, how. No, well. no, I think I mostly agree with you. The only thing I think that is funny about it is that there's this kind of like horse historical tension there that has to do with the fact that Mario is such a crucial figure in Japanese American like history for video games. And very specifically with the fact that like, if you remember the origins of Jumpman and of Mario were in a Popeye video game adaptation. Right. Right. And right. so there's a way in which Mario has always had this like, kind of like weird sideways relation to some kind of very fetishistic understanding of like, a kind of like vaguely ethnic American working class mm. um, that then has like just produced in the earlier Mario games a lot of the visual language, right, of pipes and so on and so forth, right. Mm -hmm. But I, but I, and I think, and the only reason I think it's worth saying is because there is a way in which Chris Pratt has also been that weird, like vague, highly problematic signifier for working class whiteness. Uh, in the US, right? Like in television, an obvious reference there is like a Parks and Rec. Star and this Lord, is not like a value judgment. working class hero, Star-Lord. Yeah, yeah. Like this is, well, in a way, yes, actually. Yeah, I'll take it. Like in a way, yeah. Like, and this is not, again, this is not like a value judgment. It is just a weird way in which I think there is still this attempt to glom onto some kind of like identitarian version of an American working class that Japan likes to, you know, fuck with on occasion. Um, and well, and it's not just, I mean, you see the same thing in the Final Fantasy games and some of the aesthetics of Final Fantasy games. Um, but. I do think there's something interesting in the fact that, you know, I, I sort of joked about John Leguizamo earlier, but, but he is, he did write something about critiquing the Mario film as being really white and not Italian American. Um, and sort of like trying to suggest that Mario and, you know, I think that was really sort of explored in a way in the first film as annoying as some people find it. Like, I think that there's a sort of, there is a kind of uh, gesture to that. Um, but I, the other side is, I think, uh, as far as the larger Mario question, I think, you know, this is kind of maybe a acceleration of Umberto Eco's piece, uh, The Semiotics of Superman. Mm -hmm. where he starts to talk about the meaninglessness of the fact that like Superman can never age. Um, so he can't ever have a story and yet he has to have a story. And that's sort of the aporia of this character. Um, he was writing. So echo was writing in the fifties where, you know, there was kind of like no continuity between issues. But I think that like, if you're talking about these sort of larger um, like franchise characters that just go on and on and on, you're going to run into that that problem sooner or later so it's kind of empty signifying kind of situation yeah that's a lot smarter than anything i was gonna say about it well uh, j just because i i that's why i wanted to ask the question because it's so boring 
to to hold my position, which is that there's nothing there. And so that's both of those things are a lot more interesting than my humble opinion. Well, there's also something about like the kinds of criticism, and I don't mean like judgment criticism, but just like the kinds of thinking or interpretation that certain kinds of games or texts invite versus others. And, you know, I, I honestly think that most platformer games and Mar- most Mario games don't invite narrative criticism, don't invite criticism that's a kind of like deep dive into the text, you know? They invite something that's more like cross-textual, that's like about the way in which certain kinds of mechanics have evolved over time and what they assume about players. And, you know, I think a lot of arcade games are like that, which is why, like, when you read something like, you know, of criticism, like, for example, of the gender politics in Mario, on the one hand, I find myself nodding my head, like, oh, yeah, of course. On the other hand, it's also like the most boring thing you could possibly read because it's like, okay, yeah, well... Like you could do this with much more interesting text because in a certain sense, there is no there there. And what there there is, is the very fact that there is no there there, you know, it's just, which I think is like, what's interesting is the emptiness, right? And, and I don't even mean that in a bad way, you know, but in the same way that like when, you know, Superman gets like dark and edgy in the nineties or one of the like, you know, Superman that spins out of the death of Superman, it's kind of takes away what's interesting about Superman because it weights it with something else. I don't know. Yeah. The interesting emptiness of Mario. Uh, Mario's the nihilist. Mario, I think we've placed him on the nihilist end of the nihilist. The unbearable lightness of being Mario. (laughs) The unbearable (laughs) lightness of Mario. By Luigi (laughs) (laughs) Candera. Oh boy. It's a me, your local existentialist author. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would still I will I would have been willing to hear Christian do the Mario voice on the basis of that more to some degree than what I was subjected to for the length yeah. of the runtime of the of the Mario Brothers do, movie. Um, do you all think that that's the case? What's interesting, like really quickly, I don't know if we have time to do this, but like I wonder if there's a, a comparison between what's going on with Mario and what goes on with Link, because you have this sense in which like all of the games are kind of like they're sequels, but they're also not. They don't seem like there's any kind of continuity between the games per se. I mean, maybe between Breath in the Wild and this new one, there will be. But like overall, like there is a sense that they're constantly resetting Zelda. I, I think that that probably emerges strongly in in the attempts that are very frequent in uh depending on what corner of the internet you're in to situate all zelda games as the retelling of a foundational hyrulean myth right the um, cyclical ganon theory yeah there, there, there's a cyclical ganon theory uh and and i i think that uh roger you've more or less identified why people feel like they have to posit a cyclical ganon theory uh, which is that it's it's a way to explain why we keep playing the same Zelda story with different mechanics uh, once every few years. Also, yeah. Breath of the Wild Link is super hot, which makes it a lot easier. It's it's a lot more fun uh for me really attractive link yeah yeah you don't like you don't like mario nipples i i am not i will go on record and say that i think link is much way way hotter than mario that nose though i would just eat that nose up i mean i can imagine giving the nose a little honk giving the nose a little squeeze i can i can imagine it especially in like the movie like the the movie character but I would still say there's something really uncomfortable in uh, Super Mario Odyssey. And I think I've talked about this before, too, because I'm a broken freaking record. There's something really uncomfortable in Mario Odyssey when Mario is in New Donk City, Donk City, and I is know. next to the to the regular proportioned people. Like, that really freaks me the hell out. Yeah. Whereas, whereas Link, like 
Link absolutely still does it for me. Uh, Link could stand in New Donk City and uh, Chef's Kiss. I have no notes about that. If if I may, I think we're glossing by probably the most crucial historical fact here, although perhaps Christian and and the Popeye example uh, trumps it. I think we could all agree that bar top Donkey Kong as an arcade game is fundamentally superior in gameplay, form, and story than any Mario game that follows. No. Super <laughs> Mario Brothers 3 is the best game that's ever been made. By the way, um, the fact. cool fact that I just learned, the there's a late uh, level in Dead Cells, what is it, the... Um, um, Gosh, what is it called? Anyway, it's like a it's like a place where there's all of these like bouncing like like alcoholic uh, barrels that are coming down and exploding. And uh, I played that forever. And then somebody on Reddit re- realized that the whole the the structure of the level is an homage to Donkey Kong. We we have dead cells as the everyone is here pastiche par excellence, and and you know they give items. For other games like Katana Zero or Hotline Miami, but Donkey Kong gets the whole level. That tells you that that says it all. <laughs> I think I think Don may have just won the argument. Yeah, that's good. Hey folks, I've got to run. Yes. Uh lovely to see you. Continue yep. on. It's always a Take blast care. to chat. I was it's actually gonna move us towards wrapping up anyway, but Christian. We we will bid you adieu and then take care of you. Um, I'm gonna Five offer. Bucks. Yes, see you later. It's always a blast. We'll miss you, everybody. Okay, now that he's gone. Okay, so about Christian, right? Like we yeah, we need to do something all. about this. Yeah, we need to. We need to. I just, think we need intervention. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Not enough Zoom is his problem. <laughs> I was thinking in terms of wrapping things up. So we like to do at the end of the episode, we like to recommend things that are not video games. And I was thinking that it would be fun to gamify this a little bit. And what we'll do is I'm going to put 60 seconds on the clock and you have that amount of time to introduce your thing and make a pitch for it like and and do a spiel for it and then when the clock runs out that's it that's that's how much time you you got to tell me and then um someone can be the arbiter for uh for who makes the most compelling pitch for their thing are you ready why is it why does it always have to be like a competition with you because that's what makes me feel good okay (laughs) it's my narcissism he needs goals he needs stories there's no meaning because the narrative fills the absence of meaning in my empty empty heart (laughs) (laughs) it it turned out that narcissism and nihilism were a dialectic all along oh my god no stop it <laughs> no, genuinely, it's uh because I felt like sometimes our non-game recommendations would go on for like 20 yeah, extra minutes. And I thought that. that if I was going to go out of my way to shorten them on purpose, I may as well do it in a fun way. Um, yeah, do it. 60 seconds. Sounds good. So, 60 seconds. Yes. And uh I'll uh I'll participate too. Um, so Don, why don't you go ahead? And do you have a thing? Do you have a thing in your head? I have a thing in my head. Okay. <laughs> what is it? Uh, no, go ahead and uh, tell me your thing starting now. There's a Korean reality show called Gentleman's League 2. Uh, although now I think it's in its second season, but whatever. It is a assembled collection of Korean athletes, mostly from Olympic and uh, le- more obscure sports than main league sports, assembled into a soccer team that travel around Korea or have other amateur soccer teams come to them in Seoul in order to play amateur level soccer as older, like retired athletes and people who do luge and triathlon and fencing, uh, as coached by 
Korean soccer legends from their national team. Uh, and it is a brilliant way both to experience the highs and lows of sport and to see a bunch of uh, Korea that you probably haven't. I love it. Okay. Roger. My turn. Give me a wreck. Give me a wreck. Okay. I'm, I'm going to talk about the Netflix series uh, Beast. I'm about two episodes in, so not too much. Um, but they're, they're very short episodes. Uh, Stephen Ewan and Ali Wong are in it. And it's about like uh, how quickly ang- how much anger we have in our society and how quickly we get there um, and what we do with it. And the end of the first episode, I'm totally going to spoil it because it's amazing. Is like this guy goes in and acts like he's a he's a repairman to Ali Wong and Ali Wong seems like he's kind of into him. And, and so he the guy goes into the bathroom, comes out and leaves really fast. And then Ali Wong goes into the bathroom and he has peed all over her bathroom. She <laughs> Breaks out and runs after him and screams. And it's amazing. <laughs> also, they have great music with it. So that's perfect. And there's a lot of stuff about Asian American, I think, family, I think that's going to come out. Uh, I'm only two episodes in, so I'm not sure, but I think that it might. That was awesome. That was that was a near, near perfect minute long pitch. Um, okay, so now it's my turn and I have to do my own thing. Um, so you're going to have to trust that that the watchmen watch themselves, which is super problematic in every other scenario. But with me, you're just going to have to believe me. Um, oh, you're, you're that good cop. I've heard I'm the good cop. Yeah. This <laughs> is, is only this one is, of them. Let me point out that exactly what, what Nate has just described is called fascism. In a lot of <laughs> this is the one. This is the episode, man. I am really the heel of, uh, of this podcast. <laughs> This is the one in which my narcissistic nature and my fascist <laughs> tendencies combine to create internet pull quotes that will haunt me for as long <laughs> as I'm on the academic job market. Um, this is really going great for me. So with for, for with my one minute on the clock, I don't know if everybody has already maybe seen this. I always feel like this whenever I go to recommend something that I have this insecurity that like, I'm just talking about something that I was super late to the party for. Um, but I recently, because I was really enjoying their YouTube clips, I subscribed to uh, Dropout TV and I've been watching Game Changer, which is a game show where the game changes every show. It's a different game every time. It's a bunch of people who know each other and work together well and like each other do these series of ridiculous games. Sometimes they pastiche existing reality shows. Sometimes they do totally original things, but uh, cannot recommend it enough. Uh, Sam Reich is perfect as a game show host. And uh, I think you'd really, really like it if you haven't seen it before. That's a minute. That's my time. It's really, really fun, though. It's really fun. You're over it sounds time. really amazing. You're over <laughs> You're time. Using your body. Yeah, you but, that and that's, that's what happens. And not say that it's fun. That's what happens when you let the Watchmen police themselves. Yeah. They go over time. They go over time. I, you can't trust them. I think I've seen uh, Game Changer on TikTok, little TikTok clips. Of yeah, it or something. yeah. The okay. full. I would almost suggest as I continue to fail to police myself that watching the full episodes is more fun because if you've seen the highlights, then you've seen the highlights, but sometimes there's a 10 minute ramp up to a really amazing moment in this 20 minute show that it's worth letting the ramp up happen. And the punch is even better. Anyway, super fun, super blast, Uh, super blast. (laughs) That's how I talk now. (laughs) Super blast. It's time to super blast the end of this podcast. And <laughs> what the heck even happened? <laughs> the important thing is we have we Nate, wow. captain of the podcast. That just fell. That just fell apart, y'all. Like that. <laughs> That's it. Stop. Right. Go. Thanks, everybody. Thanks okay, bye. Bye. Team Rockets blasting off again. But it's gamers with glasses. <laughs> Turn it off! <laughs> Stop it! Stop the recording!
Thank you.